While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Thanks, Rika. Please don't talk to me about um, Lisa leaving. I'm not handling it very well, and we don't need me shouting in the lobby. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things that I do that I really wish I could stop doing is sometimes when people will start talking to me about something, I will do that like normal human thing where you like so go, oh yeah. Like, oh yeah, I already know what you're gonna tell me. But go ahead and tell me. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had, you have people do this to you? Where or you do this to people where they start talking and then you do something fairly subtle to be like, yeah, I know this thing you're gonna tell me. You don't have anything on me. And, and but yeah, if they stopped, you would have no idea where, what they were gonna say. In fact, every once in a while with my kids, I'll actually stop and be like, oh, you do know. Okay, great. So what am I going to say? Or where am I going with this? And they'll be like, oh, dad. Right? And, you know, sometimes when I do that, I'm like, oh, man, that's just pride is all that is. That, but, you know, pride is one of those things that is um, transparently ugly enough that it, it always has to hide under something, right? Like even, even people who aren't Christians, like if you're a Christian, you ought to know that if God is humble, you should be too, right? I mean, like, pride is basically your worst enemy every second all the time. And humility is your greatest friend every second all the time in terms of character. But even if you're not a Christian, you know that transparent self-importance is dramatically ugly, right? So pride always hides under something. And so sometimes I have, like, I'm like, why do I do this? Have you ever, like, been in the car or something and— or been singing like a song that you like and then the song like shuts off and you realize that you actually can't, you could have sung the whole song along with it, but you can't actually sing three words once the song goes off. You have, you have no idea how it goes. In fact, there's, there's actually a show called um, Don't Forget the Lyrics where like they'll do seven songs from seven different genres and they'll play like I don't know, five stanzas of the song, and the person, the contestant, will like sing along with it, and then they cut it, and the person has to sing, I think, only the next eight words. You get the next eight words, and they're all right, and you do that for seven songs, you win a million dollars, right? And of course, the carnival trick why you can't win the Big Bear is that there are lots of people who listen to lots of music and fami are familiar with lots of songs, but they don't actually know the words. They know them when they're hearing the song, but they can't call up the words to use them themselves, independent of the song. Or I, I, when I, I grew up as a kid, when I was a kid, sitting at, li we literally did the TV dinner tray thing at my house, 
And sometimes we would watch Jeopardy. Alex Trebek looked a lot younger then. And when I, when I got older, I would, like, after college and stuff, I would hear the questions, and I was like, oh, I know that. And then the person would say the answer, and I'd be like, oh, I knew that, all right? And if that counted on Jeopardy, I would, like, still be the reigning champion, <laughs> right? But one of the reasons why this is important is because there is a huge difference between familiarity and mastery. And they seem similar to us because things that we're familiar with, so it sort of feels like we know them. Like the song comes out and we go, oh, I love this song. And then we sing along with it and we're like, oh, I totally know it. And you totally don't know it. You don't know it. Because if I said, sing that song, um, you wouldn't even know how to start the song. But if you listen to it played on the radio, you can sing the whole thing. It's because you're familiar with the song, you don't know the song. Right? Mastery is knowledge. And mastery is when, when you need something, you can call it up, but it's even actually more than that. It's when you need the thing, it, it almost feels like it calls itself up. So you're at, you're at work or wherever, or school, and somebody says something kind of mean, Right? and your blood starts to boil, and you're about to say what you really think about that, and it just sort of pops into your mind, the verse from Proverbs, a fool takes offense immediately, but a wise man overlooks an insult. Just kind of, just kind of comes up. There it is. And you go, mm, I don't want to be a fool. I know what the Bible says happens to fools. If I was wise, I would overlook an insult. I'd do something more constructive, right? It just, it happens that when you have mastery, see, I, if I said, have you ever heard the proverb, blah, 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 you'd be like, oh yeah, I heard that one. Familiarity. The last time you got insulted, did it pop into your heart? That's mastery. Discipleship, becoming like Jesus, is the endeavor of mastering the content of the gospel, not becoming familiar enough with it so that you don't look like an idiot in Sunday school. What we want is people looking like idiots in Sunday school in their own minds or in the minds of self-righteous people, but they're learning so they can learn the content of the gospel and master it. There's this, um, there's this book that's, that's written by um, like a secular Buddhist guy that I was listening to, and um, he rebuilds like, um, he rebuilds really, really old pianos and organs. So there's like 27,000 parts, and you have to like really, so it's this extremely repetitive job, but every task has to be done perfectly. And so it's a, it's a very difficult place mentally to be in, to like do exactly something you could almost do with your eyes closed, but you have to actually concentrate on it every single time. And so as he was building his business, he realized he had to learn golf so he could get more accounts. And so he went to take golf lessons, and he did it in a place, there, was all, there were all these other executives, or people who were like climbing the corporate ladder, who realized if they were going to get anywhere, they had to be good at their job and learn how to play golf. And so they were men and women, they're all there, and they don't, none of them are any good at golf. And they're with, with this instructor, and the instructor says, listen, everybody can be good at golf. And then the, the first thing he gives them is he gives them a half of a club, so the golf clubs have been cut off, and he gives them the handle portion, and he, and he does like the lessons on swings, which I, have, I don't know what's in that lesson, because I don't, I don't play golf. And he said, all you got to do now is go home and practice these fundamentals with the half golf club, right? And so he went home, and he practiced 15 or 20 minutes every day for nine days. You know, and he was kind of feeling like he kind of had something there, right? He goes back, not one other person had practiced once. And, and these are not like flunkies, right? These are all executive, like, like middle managers and growing, people who know that they got into their job by mastering something. But mentally, it's like it doesn't carry over. That like you ha if you make donuts, you have to matter, master how to make donuts, but you don't have to master how to be a good husband. Like somehow there's this like disconnect in our heads. No. Success comes through mastery. And there's nothing more critically important than the mastery of the components of character. 
which come through the continued application of the truths of the gospel through discipline to build character. Now, the reason I have taken you on that little thing that sounds like it has nothing to do with the passage that we're looking at today is this. Virtually all of the important points that are in this passage today are repeats, and we're only on page four of the book of Acts. Every single one has already come from Acts. In fact, all of them are themes in the book of Acts. And we're going to be in the book of Acts for probably the rest of this year. And so if you have the mentality of, Nick, I already know this, you're boring me, which is our natural mentality because familiarity flatters us. But in order to get to mastery, you have to get to the far side of boredom, right? It's a quote from, from Larry Osborne. He said one time, he said there's this, there's this, a number of steps in learning. The first step is familiarity. But to really get to mastery, you have to go through boredom. Because there's at one point where you've heard it enough times where you're like, I know this. And that's the moment where you have to say, do I do it 100% of the time? Do I do it 100% of the time? And 100% of the time where this is relevant, does it pop into my mind and heart exactly when I need it? And if the answer is no, then you don't know it in the biblical gnosko sense. I just quoted Greek to be funny. Like you, don't, you don't know it. You're familiar with it. You don't know it. It's not part of you. Does that make sense? Not spiritual, moral, character knowledge that isn't part of you, you don't know. And to get to mastery, you have to pass through boredom and get a better attitude about boredom so that you're not bored, so that you can actually get to mastery, so that you can be the thing you think you know. And so, there's a lot of stuff in the book of Acts that's going to come up again and 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 again. Would you like that pause? Um, and it's important because the, when the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this book, the Holy Spirit was not interested in flattering our familiarity so that every time we would read it, we would feel a little tingle sensation of, oh, I'm being expanded a little bit. The Lord would have us master a fairly small number of concepts that make an enormous difference if they're really part of us from our motivational center and our convictional center and our conscience center out. And so, there's a certain amount of peace we're going to have to make with that. So let's go through over a few of these. One of the first things that comes out again and again in these passages is the fact and meaning of Jesus and his work. Uh, one of the things that makes me nervous is when I hear people in Madison talking about the faith community. It doesn't offend me. I don't get angry. But I, I start thinking that we're not communicating. Everybody has faith, right? Faith is the leaning of trust in something. Everybody's got faith. And some people have faith in supernatural things and metaphysical propositions. But we're, we're kind of miscommunicating if in Christian faith, people think the emphasis is on faith rather than Christian. When Jesus rose from the dead, the time he spent between his raising and his ascension, he spent time inculcating the fact of his resurrection and its meaning with people. And he, he, he was very clear. He wanted them to know who he was. So when Peter in this sermon gets up, he says, listen, this is what you guys did. He doesn't say, you killed that carpenter Jesus guy, and that was not fair. That's not what he says. He says, you killed the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. Like, who Jesus is. And in this case, he's not even talking about the meaning of the crucifixion. He gets that in a couple verses. He just starts with the identity of Jesus. If you don't get that straight, we are nowhere, Right? And this is already a repeat in Acts because if you go back to Acts 1, it says that part of the purpose of Jesus' time on this earth after his resurrection, because he could have raised from the dead, he could have popped right back up to heaven. We could have had a 20-minute interval between raising and ascension. But instead, there was a period of time. And it says explicitly in Acts that the purpose of that was to demonstrate that Jesus Christ as the risen King Savior— could show himself 
to people, to show convincing proofs, to appear to them, and to speak to them about the kingdom of God. That is, that they would understand the significance of who he is and what he's done and why that matters and what, how that's going to change everything. If, if you don't start there, you just don't have anything called Christianity. I, t- I said last week, as you go through the book of Acts, there's 40 references in the sermons to the resurrection. The absolute central heart of everything that can be rightly called Christian faith is the literal, actual, bodily resurrection of the human God-man, Jesus Christ, in time-space history, who was actually crucified by real Romans and was then actually alive a few days later and who actually is alive today as king over all of the church and as savior of all who will come to him. And that becomes the lens or the filter for everything for Christians. The way we talk to people, the sentence structure you select for how you talk to your spouse or children, how you spend your money, what your ambitions are going to be, how, what disciplines you're going to invest in towards yourself and which ones you're not, how, how you engage in pleasures like eating. All of that, every single one of those is, can be related in reason and logic to Jesus. If you know Jesus well enough, something about him affects the way you would think about every single possible thing. And that is the center, the filter, the lens of all Christian faith. And that is a bit repetitive, but the, the question is, concerning the fact and meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is, do you have mastery of that, or do you have familiarity with it? Because familiarity is, is not going to do it. Only mastery does it, right? The second thing is, and this is repeated a number of times in the book of Acts, is that something incredibly game-changing happens at the ascension of Jesus. He goes, and as he says in John 14, he does not leave us as orphans. He said, I will come to you. And he said that he would come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. That is, that the Holy Spirit is with all who believe in Jesus and trust him. God himself is actually with you. And so you don't actually have to be afraid of anything And here, here's the thing. This is another one of those things that we have familiarity with, but we don't have mastery with. Either the concept of God the Holy Spirit or the person God the Holy Spirit. If you have familiarity with the Holy Spirit, you are going to be afraid of cancer and losing your job and whether or not your relationships are solid, whether or not your seemingly good marriage is going to last the test of time, whether or not you're, you're going to get the opportunity out of it when you get out of college, whether or not people are going to support you the way you hope, blah, 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 blah. Whether or not you're going to be tall enough for all the boys in here, right? All that stuff. There's this place in Romans where, where Paul talks about all the terrible things that can happen in life that we see and all the metaphysical things, angels and demons and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, listen, if God is, when it comes right down to it, if God is for you, who really can be against you? Now, people in this culture are terrified of that logic because they believe it's going to lead to religious extremism. They believe, well, if God's for you, then you can go ahead and kill whoever you want. That's never what Jesus meant by it. Right? And Jesus, their sacrifice, sacrifice is self-sacrificial. We don't, we don't kill people. We accept death. That's why the heart of the, the spread of Christianity, as Christianity spread, people died. Oh yeah, people died but it was Christians that died. It was through their deaths their killers were won over. It's all, why? Because there didn't have to be some strange visceral promise of the, of the other world for people to be willing to face even death. They just had to believe that God was with them. That's it. And he told them something very specific to do, and they could believe it, and 
they could trust God and they could trust God in the person of the Holy Spirit and they could have real guidance in their life because God was with them. And you have to seek mastery of the promise that Jesus gave that the Holy Spirit would be with you if you turned to Jesus. And in the book of Acts, it says very explicitly in the first chapter, Jesus, who'd already raised from the dead, said explicitly, do not leave, do not do, do not leave Jerusalem. That is, don't do anything I've told you to do yet until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter two, the book starts off with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit changing everything. And then all the way through the book, what happens to basically everybody who accepts Jesus? There is some Holy Spirit episode. There's just Holy Spirit episodes all the way through the book because one of the repetitive themes is that the Holy Spirit is with us and that if we believe it, if we hold it with mastery, it produces an enormous amount of courage so that by the time you get to Acts 4, where Peter and John have been threatened, intimidated, whipped publicly, and they know it's going to escalate more, their response to getting whipped publicly is that they're super happy that God the Holy Spirit counted them worthy to get whipped for him. And secondly, they pray, they actually pray an Old Testament psalm, which basically says, why do the nations raise and plot in vain? What, what can they do against God and his anointed? And he's like, I don't know what, which is the same thing as, as Romans 8. It's just the psalm's way of saying, if God is with us, who can stand against us? And they pray that through faith, and then it says, then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit? They spoke the word of God boldly, which could only mean either self-righteously or courageously. And given the context, pretty sure that means courageously. The Holy Spirit is with us if we turn ourselves over to Jesus. But like with any of these things, is it something that, am I boring you? Or do you recognize that there is a level of mastery, of acceptance, and of realization to the fact that the Holy Spirit is with you? Not to make you self-righteous, but to make you courageous. So that it would make an enormous difference in your life. The third is that when people come to Jesus, if you have put your trust in Jesus— You've accepted the fact and meaning of, his, of who he is. You've accepted that in faith. You've received the Holy Spirit. You are part of the church. And you are also part of the mission of the church. Um, becoming part of the church, if you believe in Jesus, is not an option like power windows. Okay? The church is just all the people who have accepted Jesus, are seeking to live like Jesus, and are carrying the message of Jesus. That's the church. Um, you are, if you believe in Jesus, you're part of it. And you can't be philosophically part of it and not be kind of hypocritical. Um, the hypocritical Christians are not so much in church because this is a hospital. You come here, you got to recognize that we don't have it right, right? But, but anybody who claims to be a Christian and isn't part of an actual local church, that is hypocrisy. Because you're saying you're part of something you're not part of. You're saying, I can be philosophically part of the church, but not actually part of the church. Listen, until you're part of a local church with real people of different generations, of different backgrounds, who remind some of you who, when you're like them, they remind you of your in-laws, you are not experiencing being part of the local church. And you are not embracing the reality that it is a fundamental part of the Christian identity. You are, if you believe in Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit, you are part of the church, and you have as part of your life the mission of the church, which is to daily accept Jesus, seek to live beautifully like Jesus, and to carry the redeeming and reconciling message of Jesus wherever it can possibly go. You have that mission. I'm going to move on. <coughs> you know, the next slide is right. You, are, are you like, oh yeah, I know that? <laughs> the, the fourth one is that evangelism requires accusation and invitation. You just see that we just see this over and over as you work through the book of Acts, where 
Um, and and that, like when some of you hear that, and I've kind of overused that word accusation, a lot of people what they hear is, be rude, right? All accusation means is this. You tell somebody that something happened, and you say, and you communicate to them, they are on the hook for it. That's all. Right? Somebody starts, you're a server at a restaurant, somebody starts to leave, you go, hey, this is your bill. That's all you got to do. This is your bill. You ate this food, you have to pay for it. You're on the hook, right? Um, Christian accusation is simply just helping people see that they are on the hook for themselves, morally and spiritually before God. And in, in Acts, some of the ways that Peter in the first chapters explains this is, is fairly aggressive, right? He says, you crucified the holy and righteous one. But then what you also see is he moves on and he kind of mediates this and tries to move towards invitation as well. And so the experience is meant to be really stark. It's meant to be really emotionally upheaving. Like, I killed the holy and righteous one. And then Peter says, listen, God knows that built into your rebellion was a certain kind of ignorance. And he wants to be merciful to you. And he actually was working, according to his own purposes, in your disobedience. But you're still totally on the hook, right? Now that's, a, that's fairly difficult. Um, that word for ignorance shows up four or five times in the New Testament. There's one place in First Peter, I'm sorry, First Timothy, where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he said that he's the chief of sinners— and he actually says that the reason God showed him mercy was that he acted in ignorance. Now, he wasn't ignorant that he was being vicious, right? Just like the people who crucified Jesus weren't ignorant about the fact that they were crucifying somebody they shouldn't have. But what they didn't understand is the same thing you and I don't understand. They didn't understand the size of the significance of the thing. They didn't, they didn't get the, the they didn't get the implications. So when they crucified Jesus, they knew that they were crucifying somebody they shouldn't have. But they didn't really know he was the divine God-man. They didn't really know that. When Paul was persecuting Stephen, he thought he was doing God a favor. He should have realized he wasn't. On a certain level, he's entirely culpable of a sin. He did not realize he was killing an eternal, immortal—not an eternal, an immortal being that belonged to the God who is king of all creation. And he was approving of the destruction of one of his approved, redeemed image bearers. He did, he did not know—he didn't understand the full cosmic offense of his actions. And listen, it's not just non-Christians that don't understand that. It's us that we don't understand that. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be willing to argue that, that I could count on one hand the number of us that if I said, listen, Scripture says that the appropriate divine offense for just one sin is actually eternal conscious torment for you. You might be willing to tell me, or I might be willing to tell you that I believe that. I would say less than five of us in this room could, with a real deep sense of personal authenticity, understanding something of the gravity and not being flippant at all, would be willing to say that we totally emotionally connect with that. Right? And, here, and here's what that means. We don't really think we're on the hook and it's our job to put other people on the hook. Does that make sense? And so I, one of the graces of God commanding us to offer the message of redemption to people is that, um, so here, here's a phrase that I've, I've heard a number of times before. If you really want to learn something, blank it. Ready? So I'm gonna say it again. If you wanna play, you can help me fill in the blank. If you really wanna learn something, teach it, right? Teach is the right answer there, probably. Right? Because 
that's how you get mastery when you're going to try to explain it to somebody else. I remember at the last church I served in Florida, there was a guy who came to me. He said, Nick, I've just loved coming to Lynn Haven Methodist. It has been so great, and I, my faith is growing so much. Like, I was just nowhere with God or the Bible or any of that stuff, and now I'm, I feel like I'm growing by leaps and bounds, and I was like, well, I mean, I can understand that listening to me preach. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> that's, that's great. And he goes, let me tell you how, how this is happening. My son is in fourth grade Sunday school, and I volunteered to teach it. And so we're doing all these Bible stories and Christian things and whatever. I don't know any of them. And so I had to get this Bible, and I've been reading all the stories beforehand and reading blah, 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 because I don't know what these fourth graders are going to ask. And i got to be ready for them, right? He says, my, so my faith is growing so much. I've never read about, did you know there's this guy Moses in the Bible? And he did this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, Moses is in the Bible. Right? Because he was—but here's the thing. <clears throat> when you explain to somebody the idea of divine wrath, and they tell you, it sounds to me like your God has a, like, disproportionate, emotionally explosive problem. And I don't want anything to do with that. And you have no idea how to talk to them about that. That's not because God— hasn't been clear or persuasive. It's because you and I don't believe that we are on the hook. You see, and, and you see, the whole cross is about this idea, the idea that when God sees our sin, when we act like this, we should be on the hook. We are actually guilty. Our ignorance does not make it okay. The actual proper and emotionally appropriate cosmic offense is near infinite. And we are thumbing our nose at the creator, redeemer. I mean, the level of appropriate divine lash is, divine wrath is astronomical. And none of us have even begun to enter into how much we have actually sinned. And yet, the world we've lived in how we've swirled around in this, the way we affirm each other in our ignorance, the way we've lived in a culture that has constantly suppressed the truth because that's what we are as human beings, truth suppressors. It says in Romans 1, because of all of that, there's a certain amount of ignorance wrapped up in all of that, and that does not motivate God to let us off the hook. It does not motivate him to say, oh, I guess they're not guilty. That is not, that's nowhere in the scriptures. But what it motivates is compassion. It doesn't invalidate the proper emotion of wrath. Doesn't value that. The, the, the actual guilt and the wrath demanded by a proper sense of divine justice is a perfectly proper, appropriate, and, a, and proportional emotion. And because God is emotionally, divinely perfect, it is white hot. And the perfectly appropriate divine emotion in relationship to our ignorance and brokenness is compassion. And generosity and a desire that the end that we deserve is not the end that we would receive. And that is exactly the purpose of the cross. It is the intersection of the solving of the proper internal emotional conflict that God has over human self-destruction. It is not emotionally—I mean, haven't you felt emotionally torn at many times in your life, and you didn't believe that the reason you were emotionally torn wasn't because you weren't thinking clearly? You were emotionally torn exactly because you were thinking clearly? Right? You raise a kid into their teens, and they start going buck nuts crazy, and you want to kill them, and you love them, and you know both of those emotions are perfectly right? That, that is the appropriate emotion. Appropriate emotions in a being, a person, are often torn by the broken nature of reality. And it is the cross that brings those two together. And you better, we better be able to explain both of the emotions that create the cross. Otherwise, it seems lopsided and nobody will feel on the hook. And part of the beauty of the gospel is how God gets us off of the hook not how we earn it or how we dismiss it. And we live in a culture that is not just, nor, in a normal human way, unwilling to accept guilt. We live into a, in a culture that on top of the normal human ability to say, actually, it's this woman you gave me that's the problem, to quote the very first chapters of the Bible. Be, so passing off fault and blame is a universally human thing for both genders all the time. In addition to that, we have made it a cultural art form 
in the one we all live and have all grown up in. Which makes us much more emotionally shallow people. It makes it much more difficult to have substantive relationships because relationships always have true offense in them. And without dealing with those as true offense and asking for real forgiveness, you can't really undo the brokenness and hurt of the past. I was talking with Lisa not that long ago, and she said, she said, it, it wasn't, she said, I, I've lived in a culture that whenever anybody apologized, people said, oh, don't worry about it. She said, it wasn't till I got married that Tony, her husband, was like, he would ask for forgiveness. He'd say, I did this. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she said, it really wasn't till we got married that I realized that the, the offenses now were hurtful enough that we needed something deeper than don't worry about it. If don't worry about it fixes it, you either have a shallow relationship, it doesn't really fix it, or the thing wasn't really much of an offense. Real interhuman hurt, to really get put behind, there has to be confession of sin, a request for forgiveness, and a passion and deep, clear that, clearly that you feel that way, that engenders trust in the other person, that you actually mean it. And then it's really helpful if you back it up in future actions. And so we have got to recognize that both for ourselves and for people as the church that we're going to share the gospel with, we live in a culture that does not want to be on the hook and a culture that disbelieves all metaphysical claims, which is so many of the promises of Christian faith, right? We live in a culture that worships the empirical, right? We believe that, that if you— if you bake chocolate chip, cook, chip cookies for this long, they'll be gooey, and this long, they'll be hard. If, if we can repeat it, we could prove that it's empirical, then great. But if it's going to be a future empirical spiritual reality, or if it's a metaphysical reality, that is a moral truth, or something that happens relationally between people, something that you cannot actually grab with tweezers and put in a test tube, we don't believe in it. Or we don't believe that it's certain, we just believe that it might be usable and you can try it. The entire gospel is built on those two things. The, the actual incredible reality of those two things, the beauty is, is that God actually demonstrated it through the empirical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because he knew we needed that. Which brings us back to the first circle. But when you think about the fact of evangelism and how we have to hold ourselves and others on the hook, that that's fundamentally part of it, and we also need to demonstrate the graciousness of God and how, I mean, think about what Peter says. Right after he tells them that they murdered the author of life, he goes, but listen, this is what he planned all along, and he, he really wants to redeem you, and if you will just say that you are wrong, repent, and turn to God. Just turn to God. He will forgive you. He will redeem you. He will bring about all the promises he ever promised to everybody in the human family. He will ultimately redeem all things. He will, 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 he will. And that has to come to people who are on the hook. The last thing <coughs> of these is that the plan of God has been absolutely consistent about all of this stuff from the very beginning. There is a emphasis all the way through the book of Acts that everything that Jesus did is 100% continuous with the entire Old Testament, and that God has been doing it exactly this way the whole time. There hasn't really been a change. There's just, there's been a growth and a fulfillment, but there has not been a change. It's all functioning on the exact same principles, the exact same way. The difference is we actually know who the atoner is, we know who the Messiah is, and, and he actually did the work of redemption. So that's actually happened in the storyline, but the philosophy, the functionality, none of that's changed. No. Some of the reason why that's important is that a lot of the modern attacks on Christian faith is that we actually don't have any idea what happened to the first couple centuries of Christianity. This is like the sexy thing to say now. That um, there are a number of authors who will say, um, you know, a lot of stuff that's in the New Testament, the early church put in there because they liked it. That there were all these, er there were a lot of early, there were a lot of Christianities in the first couple centuries. And the one that we think of as like Christianity, Orthodox Christianity now is like just one of them. And it sort of won out in 325 at Nicaea because Emperor Constantine was behind it. And there are all these lost Christian documents that we found now. And they talk about all these other ways to be spiritual related to Jesus and so on. 
and some, some pretty bright people who teach at some fairly well-regarded institutions teach this sort of thing. And all of that is wrong for lots and lots and lots of reasons. For example, what we think of as orthodoxy today, Constantine was absolutely against and was fighting for a totally different view, for example. It took the four-foot-something black dwarf from Egypt, Athanasius, to fight a whole empire so that we would believe about Jesus properly. The, po- the power was not in the hands of the Orthodox Christians. But, but way more importantly than that is you don't even need a New Testament to know the gospel. You don't need the New Testament to know that what we call Orthodox Christianity, that Jesus died for our sins, that he's called us to follow him, that he's given us the Holy Spirit, that he's created this thing called the church, the doctrines of the creed, that that's true. And that the contradiction of that is false. You, you don't, because it's all in the Old Testament. It was all there, perfectly clear, long before there were any other Christianities, as these scholars like to call them, which actually weren't in the first century, and almost all of them were second century. We know all the pagan philosophies that they'd pulled in, and what parts of the Bibles they didn't like, and all of that. That's a whole different discussion. I read all of those documents that were supposedly lost when I was in seminary. Every educated minister has. It's not new, but it really publishes books well. But none of that matters because the Orthodox Christianity was locked down in Genesis 15 or 14 or 12 when it says Abraham believed God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, Paul later on in the book of Romans says that's the gospel right there. It's right there in Genesis 12, 15, 14 or 15 and 18. It's right in Genesis and all the way through, all the way through the Old Testament, what we believe is how we're supposed to trust Jesus and receive the Spirit. All these things are all laid out in the Old Testament. And that is exactly what Jesus was teaching between his resurrection and his ascension. When he talked to his disciples about the kingdom of God, they did not understand their Old Testaments. They did not understand how God had had this continuous teaching all the way through. And that's important because it, it lends, not only is there this miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, but he comes in complete continuity to more than a thousand years of previous revelation, and it all comes together. And once the apostles see that, they're able to teach it. So we don't have to even believe in the New Testament to be Christians. We don't. There were lots of Christians before there was a New Testament. Now, we should. The New Testament is God's, the Word of God written. These are the right books. They are accurate. All of that's true. But We don't even need them to be Christians. All of it is in the Old Testament. It tells us that there was a Messiah coming, that he would suffer, that he would die for our sins, that he would rise from the dead, that we must put our faith in him, that God would pour out his spirit on a new people, that that new people would be a redemptive force in the earth, that he would ultimately return and restore all things. All of it is in the Old Testament. Every scrap of it. And that's why I'm not intimidated by the other Christianities. No, we can't really know what the early Christians really taught. Of course we can. It's the first two-thirds of the Bible. And everywhere we work through the book of Acts, this is what Peter and Paul and the other preachers always say. They say, God is fulfilling what he foretold through the prophets, that God would restore everything he promised long ago through his holy prophets. He's referring to the whole Old Testament. Indeed, he says, all of the prophets, from the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, have foretold these days. He's saying the whole Testament, from the first five books of the Bible, because he's about to quote Moses, if you, if you look closely at the text, which is the section before the prophets. Samuel's the first prophet, all the way to the present. He says every single one of those books, because the wisdom books were, con- were included in the prophets in those days. All of them point to this, what's happening in Jesus. And you see this as you work through the sermons, right? So Peter gets up the first time in Acts 2, and he says, listen, guys, do you see what's happening, right? The Holy Spirit had come, and amazing things had happened. He said, listen, this is what—Jesus, ha- it was the Messiah. He came, and he died to save us from our sins. He's risen from the dead. He's poured out his Spirit on all of us, and this is the result of it. He's created this thing, this church, this assembly of people who trust and believe in him, and he's empowered us, and we're going to be his witnesses. And people go, well, that can't possibly be right. That's not Judaism. And Peter says, yes, it is. Look at Joel 2. And Joel 2, who's one of the little prophets where if you, like, look in your Bible, the pages are probably still stuck together because you've probably never actually read it. 
okay? He picks like the most obscure person he possibly He's like, even in Joel, look at Joel 2. Joel 2 says, in, in those last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Old men, old women, young men, young women, they'll prophesy, they'll dream dreams, they'll do all kinds of things. And in those days, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the dynamic of salvation is going to be that God will offer his name and something to put our faith in in order to redeem us. Not our effort, not our mystical spirituality, but God will provide something. And if we trust in the name of the Lord, we'll be redeemed, we'll be saved, we'll be delivered. And it, it's in that same time, he'll pour out this powerful presence of his spirit on everyone who believes, right? He's like, it's right there in Joel. You don't need a New Testament? It's right there in Joel. He gets on a little further and is talking about the suffering and the resurrection of the righteous one. And he says, I'm not making this up. It's right in Psalm 16. And he says, Jesus is both king and savior, just like it says in Psalm 110, verse 1. And all the way through, as you pass through this whole book, the New Testament, especially in Acts, is constantly, constantly quoting and pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, it's, this is what the whole Hebrew Bible says all we're doing is showing you that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. That's all we're doing. Let me give you an example of that and bring us full circle <coughs> by looking at one of the passages quoted here. So when you look at the text, right, he says, In verse 22, for Moses said, so that's before Samuel, in what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people, that is from among the Jews. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Now that is a phrase used throughout the whole Torah of the demanded obedience to the first covenant. That if, that when, when Moses gave the law, it was required that people would be obedient to it. And the penalty for not obeying it is to be, and the phrase is always, cut off. And nobody actually knows exactly what that means. About two-thirds of Bible commentators thinks it means put to death. And about a third believe it means that they have to be necessarily exiled or put outside of the people of God as a, like, as a Jewish community. But he says, what he's saying is, another prophet like Moses. Now, what was fundamentally distinct about Moses as a prophet? Right? Now, there were lots of prophets, but the most fundamentally distinct thing about Moses was that he was a covenant giver. He gave human beings the agreement between God and them and how they were going to live together and how they were going to relate to each other. And so, only— and you can actually see this because it says a couple verses later that they are heirs of the prophets and the covenants. Right? The fundamental and distinct thing about Moses was he had the ability to speak for God. See, most of the prophets applied what God said, but they didn't give distinctively new revelation. They basically said, hey, we've got the Torah. Why don't we live by it? God gave us this law. This is our covenant. This is our agreement with God. We have to live by it. We have to live up to it. Right? But here Moses says, at the very end of the Torah, he says, a time is going to come when a whole other prophet is going to come like me, who has the capacity to reveal a covenant with God. Right? And he says, when he comes, you can't in that day cling to what I've said or how you want to apply it. You're going to have to listen to him because it's going to seem different. And we know from the rest of this, it's not going to be different, but it's going to seem different. But he, because he has more authority than Moses, who is sort of the authoritative figure of like the whole Bible, right? You're going to have to listen to him. Now, if you actually say, okay, how do I master this point? Instead of just like, clearly Peter's saying, Jesus is this prophet, therefore you should listen to him and what we say about him, so repent and believe. That is true. That's true. But what if you actually read the Old Testament text and try to figure out what it meant in its context? Last week, I said, sometimes people will say, if Jesus wanted us to realize he was literally empirically raised from the dead, why didn't he appear to more people? Right? And I joked about, well, if 500 isn't enough, how many is? Right? But I, I, I said the text actually says because he wanted to explain the significance of his resurrection to the people who experienced it, so the meaning of his resurrection and the fact of his resurrection would never get separated. 
They're meant to go together. You're not supposed to interpret the resurrection of Jesus however you want. It means a specific thing, and he wanted the people who witnessed his resurrection to be clear about the meaning of his resurrection, right? But you could still say, well, but Nick, why doesn't God just do both then? Why not, why won't Jesus, God just reveal himself and explain himself? Right, you could, you could rejoin with that, right? Well, see, if you read this passage, it explains it in the sweep of the Bible. The reason there is this new covenant is because it's in keeping with God's agreement with people and still agreeing with what they wanted, but giving them more than they ever thought they could receive that way. Because, if, here, look at the passage. You can see that when Peter quotes it here, he doesn't quote it all verbatim. He quotes three verses from this text. He, this is the text from Deuteronomy. This is Moses revealing this. The Lord your God will raise up for you, that is the Jewish people, a prophet like me from among your own brothers. So there's going to be a, a Moses-level prophet from the Jewish people. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the, assemb of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they said is good. Now that is a little bit astounding, because if you read how the Israelites behave in the Exodus, God is not prone to telling them they did a good job. Okay, that whole story is about them complaining and not really wanting to follow him and blah, blah, and moaning and we don't even like this food and why are you taking us here and are we just going to die? And Moses is like, oh my gosh. I mean, he's the most likely person in the Bible to be bald. <coughs> but when they actually got to Mount Sinai at Horeb and God showed himself in his glory as he prepared to speak to them the covenant. It was so terrifying to see God unveiled that they, that they didn't want it. And they said, can, we, can you please mediate this? Because we can't do this thing. And God's response to that was, that is the best thought you have had since you left the Nile behind. That is, you're right. And so he mediated the agreement. God spoke and show, showed himself through the covenant he made with, through Moses and through his prophets. But he said, it's not always going to be like this. Ultimately, his full redemption comes because what God wants ultimately is a relationship with us that's much more direct. That another prophet would come who would be a game changer. And when that happened, you're going to have to listen to what he says. And at that moment, God comes up with, I mean, God had the idea, but he actually acts out the way to fix that problem with us in a unglorified state by becoming incarnate as the God-man, Jesus Christ. What we asked for, which is to not have a unmediated experience of God because it's terrifying, and what God wanted, that we would have an unmediated experience with him together through the person of the Son becoming human and being the prophet like Moses to bring about a whole new covenant, a whole new agreement, a whole new relationship with God. Now one, if we master what that means in this text, we have, I think, what is the start of a decent and possible answer for a skeptical questioner. But here's the other thing that we can ask ourselves when we look at this more deeply. When we say, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Okay, wait, I'm not going to let myself be bored with it. How do I master it? Well, here's the question. Why don't we ever like what God gives us even when it's what we asked for? You see, that's the more fundamental, eternal, like, fundamental reality of the nature of human beings and how we are in relationship to God. And it's not just true of skeptics and non-believers. It's true of all of us that this is exactly what the Jews wanted. And these were not the secular people. These were the religious people. And God gave them exactly what they asked for in Moses, except a thousand times better, and they didn't want it. And we are just like them.
Remember, the Jews in the Bible are not idiots so that we could be anti-Semitic. They're idiots because they're humans just like us. And when these leaders say, we don't like this, we are meant to identify with them, not judge them, and say, you know, that's right. This happens all the time. It's all the time. Like, think about Zechariah. Prays for a couple decades for his wife, Elizabeth, to have a baby, and miraculously, she conceives John the Baptist. And when the angel comes and tells him that she's going to have a child, he doesn't believe it. And you and I are like this all the time. We're like this all the time. We haven't mastered the gospel. We don't really believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We haven't identified ourselves fundamentally as part of this organism of the church that's organic and repetitive and real, and we haven't entered even so much into the message of the gospel that we can explain it all that well because we won't even put ourselves on the hook for it, and we don't even see how dramatic the continuity is in all that God has given us, how well he has offered salvation and life and blessing to us, and our response is always, us, the religious people, the people who believe in God. We're always like, oh, I don't like this. That's what you have to master. Drawing those kinds of questions and then letting them settle in and dealing with them and recognizing that we're the boring ones. We're the ones that don't want a new question about our character. We're the ones who want to stay static and where we are because we don't want to be pushed. We're the ones who think God should do more so that we can like it more. And what moving towards mastery will create, what really listening to the text is, what inculcating the themes will do is it will break us up and it will force us to face things we don't even see, we don't want to deal with, and that are so simple that when we really face them, they're embarrassing because you think you're a good Christian. But I guarantee you that if you pray and you think a little bit, there will be something in the last two weeks that is God's providence for you that you don't like. I'm almost certain of that. Here's what I want to tell you. We're going to be in Acts for like the rest of the year. These are the themes. Are you excited? Right? Churches cover way too much information, and it's because I want you to come back because I want to flatter the feeling you get when I offer you familiarity. But it's actually not what you require. What you require to thrive in the gospel is mastery of actually a fairly small number of enormously significant concepts that will change your life, that can be mastered by somebody who has an IQ of 70. And they're the same things you need. What you need actually isn't even more significant than that. And that's why you think you're bored. And you're not bored, right? What do you, do you tell your kids this? If you're bored, it's because you're boring? Do you, do you ever tell your kids that? The world is infinitely interesting. If you're bored, it's because you're boring, right? Because Mastery finds—a heart for mastery finds everything relevant. Let's pray. Father, um, we want so much to be a people that are growing as disciples who aren't self-righteous, who are believing you first, seeing what we should have convictions about, letting that percolate into our conscience and the heart, our motivational center, that, that sees something of your glorious ways, that draws us again and again to see that all of life is repentance. At every turn, we're going to see where we're wrong and you're right, how your truth is beautiful and clearer and more glorious than what we have previously thought, and that it will expand and deepen us and strengthen us, and that it will lead us to a certain mastery of the certain avenues of discipleship that will lead us to the last verse in this passage where you say that you want to deliver blessing to people by leading them out of their wicked ways. And we, we just want, we want, to, we want to experience what it's like to be drawn and to be like Jesus, to have the courage that comes from knowing that your spirit is with us, to really being shaken up 
and frustrated and forced to grow by being in the imperfect community of the church, but yet that has the gospel and the Holy Spirit to lead us forward, to be part of the mission of the church, to share the gospel with the world, to be on the hook ourselves and to be able to explain that to our neighbors and friends, and to see your continuity in our lives and in all the lives that have come before us. Help us to see you as great and beautiful and true and us as liars. And help us to have a humble, but incredibly thankful and joyous attitude towards you and towards each other. We pray in Jesus' name.